With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Red Sea Podcast. Back to full. Red Sox fans have longed to hear it. The Boston Red Sox are world champions. Part of the Over the Monster Network. Swinging a high deep drive in the right field. That one's called to the right. Hunter on the move. Racing back. It's over his head. It's gone. It's into the bullpen. This game is tied. This game is tied. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. David Ortiz. Presented by SB Nation. by Jake Devereaux. Here comes a one-two pitch. And featuring Keaton DeRocher. Strikeouts in 2017 for Chris Sale. An absolute strikeout machine. 13 tonight against the Baltimore Orioles. They're all loaded. High fly ball. Deep in the left center field. Way back it carries. That ball is gone. The Red Sox walk it off. In style. That's how it's done. The X-Man strikes. Fly ball to deep left center field. Devers has hit it out. The rookie takes Chapman the other way to tie the game. Welcome back to the Over the Monster podcast. This is your host, Jake Devereaux, and today I'm joined by Matt Collins of Over the Monster for episode 157. Matt, how are you? Uh, hanging in there. How you doing? I'm doing okay. I'm, uh, I'm definitely getting a little bit tired of living this quarantine life. Um, got out to the park today, which was kind of cool. Um, so I'm trying to like do little things to keep myself feeling normal. It was really weird. I was driving in the end of my street today, and um, I hadn't been out in a little while. And there were a bunch of cars. Like, I was waiting for cars so I could pull out. And I was like, huh, I haven't seen this much traffic in probably a month. So it was it was kind of cool to feel normal for, like, five minutes. Yeah, although there probably shouldn't be that many people out there. <laughs> no, probably not. I think people are getting frustrated with, like, yeah, no, not that. doing anything, so... But yeah, um, okay, so today, uh, for this edition of the show, Matt and I thought we would bring you a interesting discussion on the best homegrown pitching outcomes of the John Henry era. There's been a lot made of how the Red Sox aren't very good at pitcher development, so we decided that, you know, why not kind of take a look at it and see where they've actually succeeded 
Um, John Henry bought the team in 2002, so all the guys that we're going to be talking about debuted after that. Um, and uh, we're even going to kind of mention some guys that were, were moved for other pieces towards the end of this as well. And then, as usual, we're going to answer your listener questions. Um, so let's get right into it, Matt. We both made our top tens, and they were very similar. And for our number one choice, we both had John Lester. Um, that was like the biggest no-brainer of this list, right? Yeah, I mean, to me, the whole top three, I guess, was... I didn't really think too much about it. But yeah, John Lester was obviously... I mean, I don't really know how much discussion this even really merits. I mean, you talked about how bad they've been. John Lester is really the only true, like, bonafide success in this whole era, in terms of starting pitching, at least. Yeah, he is. Um, And I think John Lester is also kind of an interesting guy because not only has his time with the Red Sox been good, but obviously he's been pretty good with the Cubs, and he's been an absolute postseason warrior um, throughout his entire career as well. Um, I was looking at his stats, and I was using the new Fantrax tool that kind of allows you to um, group together a bunch of years and aggregate some year totals. And for the Red Sox, from 2008 to 2011... He had a 3.33 ERA, struck out almost nine batters um, per nine. He was at 8.68. He threw 813 innings over that time. He was really, really good for that stretch. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was... I mean, I think you could extend that... Certainly extend that further, too. I mean, 2012 was, like, the hiccup year. Um, But, I mean, pretty much from 2008 through the time he got traded halfway through 2014 i mean he was pretty much lights out except for that 2012 season and i mean i think anyone who watched baseball in 2012 knows the i don't know how much you can count for anybody for that season i mean that season was just a disaster yes that was the bobby v year wasn't it it sure was yeah so i mean that's and that was the only (laughs) year that he wasn't extremely good i mean the next 2013 we remember the postseason he kind of got off to a slow start there too i think mm. he got off to a slow start his numbers overall were i mean they were good but they weren't like where they were the rest of his career but um i mean that was just that one little hiccup but other than that he was pretty much dominant that whole time yeah those postseason numbers are insane 34 and two-thirds innings pitched um with a 1.56 era that's that's uh, as good as it gets man yeah i mean he was that's legendary status for a world series run yeah oh totally and you know what he he's also been really good in some other postseasons as well 2008 he had a 2.36 era during those playoffs 2007 even though he only had nine innings 1.93 and then um also in the cubs world series run he had a 2.02 era in 2016 over 35 and two-thirds innings pitch so He's an absolute postseason monster. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the two World Series runs, the um, twenty, well, two thousand seven, I'm not counting, but twenty thirteen and uh, twenty sixteen, I think we're on another level. Because um, I mean, like two thousand eight, he was out of his mind in the uh, division series wasn't that great in the ALCS. Mm-hmm. So just like the consistently series to series 2013 and 2016 were just insane. 
Yeah, it's it's crazy that he's been able to do this consistently too. Um, I agree with you, but the thing that's kind of interesting too is that even in the two years after that, where the Cubs made the the postseason in 2017 and 2018, he was still exceptional in those. Yeah, Yeah, just not as many innings, but yeah, he was when he pitched, he was great for sure. Yeah. His, his his lifetime postseason uh, marks are insane. It's 154 innings, 2.51 ERA. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's, like I said, he's the only true success starting pitcher-wise. Red Sox have been, I think, we'll get, I mean, we'll get into it, but I think the Red Sox have been underrated, not great, but underrated with developing relievers. But mm, yeah, starting yeah. pitching, Lester's really the only guy. Yeah, I would agree. Um I want to talk just a little bit before we move on from Lester about what you think his chances are of Hall of Fame. And I know you hate talking about the Hall of Fame, but he's kind of making a little bit of a sneaky argument, even though he's below a bunch of guys who are currently in the Hall of Fame. Um, He's at like 46 um, total Fangraphs war. I think he'll probably add to that because he's still got a few years left to pitch. Um, but it won't be substantially higher war than what he's got right now. But the thing that's crazy is the postseason stuff and all the accolades there. Do you think that postseason stuff gives him sort of that push that he needs? I don't think so. Um, I think it'll be an interesting case. But, I mean, I figure he's got, what, at least three years left pitching. Yeah. And then another five years after that. Um, I don't know what the... Hall of Fame electorate's going to... I mean, I think postseason will obviously always be valued, but I don't know that Lester is going to be close enough regular season-wise. Yeah. Postseason will push him over. So I would say, I think he'll stick on the ballot for a few years. I don't think he's going to be a one-and-done, but uh, I don't think he's going to be... I don't think he ultimately makes it. Yeah, I don't think so either. It's an interesting case, um, but yeah, I feel yeah, like he I didn't really have so. a peak either. I mean, you said the numbers, that he was like really good in those numbers... But I don't know, maybe I'm just not in tune enough with the league as a whole, but I feel like he was never really considered that guy, whether no. he was fair or not. No, he wasn't. I mean, that's... I'm looking. He top five in the Cy Young three times, top ten another time. Um, made a few All-Star games. I, yeah, I guess I, I just never felt the perception of him was there. Maybe no, and... I mean, five all-star games and in, in, in three top five finishes is good, but it's just not its not comparable to a lot of the Hall of Fame guys. No. And he doesn't have, like, I don't like I don't, I don't have Jack Morris' numbers in front of me, but Jack Morris, like, the argument for him was always, like, best pitcher in the 80s or whatever, and Lester will never have that. Right. For a good reason, obviously. He was never the best pitcher of a decade or anything like that. Neither was Morris, but nobody's ever said that about John Lester. It is kind of an interesting argument, though, when you look at Jack Morris, because I kind of think he might be better than Jack Morris. Yeah, but then you get into the weird, this is part of why I don't like the Hall of Fame. Like, just because one guy got in who shouldn't be, does that mean you're supposed to lower the standards going forward? Maybe there's right. an argument that you should, but I don't. I just don't think that that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, I think it's all going to come down to how how they value those three World Series and that NLCS MVP and you know and all the other accolades that he has. I mean, he's... Maybe he's a guy, I mean, he hasn't been, he's been at least average by ERA every year of his career, except for that 2012 season. Even last year, he was, he had a 100 ERA plus. So, I mean, he's not, like, totally tailing off or anything. If he 
can be good for like another five years and add another ten war into his age forty season. I wouldn't bet on that happening, but it's not totally out of the right out of the realm of possibility. Yeah, if he could add ten more war, I think this becomes a coin. He would flip. need to have like a five win season in there probably to do that. But like, and obviously twenty twenty being what it is, yeah, so that hurts anybody's case. That's like on that borderline. Like, I wonder if that gets factored into this at all. I think it depends. <laughs> we have no idea how this ends. Yeah, so right. It's kind of hard to look at how things get affected without knowing the end. One of the things that's definitely been underrated about John Lester, though, is his, has been his durability throughout his entire career. And I also think it's cool to mention that, you know, uh, in 2007, when he won that World Series with the Red Sox, he had, you know, shortly before that come off of the leukemia scare that he had before. Yeah. And then very shortly after winning the World Series, too, the next following year, uh, he throws his no-hitter with, with uh, Jason Veritek behind the plate. So he, he had a really kind of magical run in return from that health scare that he had. And he's made at least 31 starts every year since 2008. That's unheard of. Yeah, that's definitely among the best in the game in terms of durability for sure. All right, moving on here to our second-ranked um, pitcher for this list. Uh, we both had Jonathan Papelbon, and when I first made my first version of this list, I omitted him by accident, um, but he is so clearly the second best player behind Lester on here that I was like, I couldn't believe that I did that. Yeah, I don't think people, I, I get the sense that people don't remember how good Jonathan Papelbon was. Um, Jonathan Papelbon was so unbelievable for five years when he first got called up um he was like mariano rivera was on a different planet papelbon was as close as you can get to rivera like oh easily and it's uh, i saw like a discussion of koji versus papelbon and it's so they're so different for personality wise and like ever in just about every way but Man, I know how good Koji was for that one year, but Papelbon was like that dude for a half decade. Like I just, I can't. Papelbon's the best Red Sox closer I've ever seen. Just if you factor in everything. Yeah, I mean, definitely peak, right? Like sustained peak for Papelbon. I think you're absolutely right. It's one of the best sustained peaks for a closer in Even league if you history. Look at one season. I mean, his 2006 season was bananas. He had a ERA under one in yeah. almost 70 innings. I mean, he was just, he was so good. And that it was a time when offense good. was pretty high, too, as well. He, I mean, his ERA plus was 517. Yeah, that's it's a crazy season right there. Yeah, yeah he was, so I mean, I don't know. In, in terms of this list, it, I think I've always been higher on relievers than other people anyways, but there's just no question, dude guy that was as good as Papelbon was and I say five years but it was really his entire Red Sox career he had that one 2010 was like more good than great but his whole time with the Red Sox is really out of this world yeah so he came up with the Red Sox in 05 wasn't the closer he even started three games in 2005 he He was supposed to go back to being a starter and then they just decided against that because he was so good yeah, and, and so over that six-year period, 
um, when he took over as the closer, essentially, in 2006-2011. He saved 219 games, which is by far and away the Red Sox record. He's got like nearly 100 more saves than the next best Red Sox closer of all time. And over that, he pitched 395 innings with a 10.8 Ks per nine with a 2.30 ERA over that time span. He didn't walk anybody either. That was the crazy thing about Pap is like his walk rates were always crazy low too. So he was kind of like the best mix of both. He was striking everybody out. He wasn't walking anybody. And he was a complete psychopath on the mound in a good way. Yeah, he didn't give up home runs either. No. That was... um, for a guy throwing that many strikes, you would expect some more home runs, and he just—he like, was the total package for sure. And yeah, he was a psychopath, and sometimes it was good. I mean, all closers are a little bit messed up in the head. Path of fun, kind of let him get the best of him sometimes, but more of that came after he left than while he was with the Red Sox. Do you remember when he tried to fight Bryce Harper when they were teammates? Choked him. <laughs> it's amazing. He, it was more than trying to fight him. I mean, he put his hands around his neck. <laughs> By all accounts, though, like he was a really good teammate and a really good guy too. He, I've heard some stories about him, like really going out of his way to help people um, during his time in Boston. So I think he was probably, for all his craziness, like one of the better guys to be around. I don't know if I agree with that, but I don't really want to get into it. <laughs> okay, so um, Papabon, moving on. To our third guy, um, Matt, I know that this is the guy that you really love more than I do, so I'm going to kind of cede the floor to you and let you tell us why Clay Buchholz, who we both had third, is the third best pitcher development story of this kind of generation of players. Well, I mean, I don't think there's any any debate that he's third. I mean, it's there's a pretty clear tier here of the top three, I think. And I mean, Buckles, I know people don't like Buckles, and I sort of get it, but also I don't think people appreciate it. Buckles was on pure talent and on, like, peak. He was better than Mustard. Like, when Buckles was at his best, he was better than Mustard. Um, Buckles, the thing is, he obviously wasn't always at his best, and that matters. That's why Lester is so clearly out of him. But uh, 2013, Clay Buckles, before he got hurt, that first half of the season, was about as good as I've seen a Red Sox pitcher pitch in the last decade. Um, maybe not quite Pete Chris Sale, but he was I mean, he was the Cy Young favorite before he got hurt, um, which I forget when he got hurt. It was some point in June. but And then he came back in that World Series run, very clearly still injured, and gutted his way through, I don't remember how long the start was. It was either four or five innings. But it was absolutely incredible. It was four innings in the World Series with one unearned run where when he was throwing, like, 85-mile-an-hour fastballs. And the fact that people still, like, question his toughness and his will to, like, go out and compete, like, always really bothered me, especially considering that start. That was just as gutsy as it gets. So um, I understand getting frustrated with the injuries, and that's why he's below Lester, but... In terms of pure talent, I mean, that dude just dealt, and I don't fault him, like, personally for getting hurt. It, it happens to pitchers. Yeah, and he's got, you know, much slighter build than, than Lester and things like that. I don't know what happened behind the scenes and stuff like that, whether or not it was, like, 
he didn't take care of himself or what contributed to it, but guys just get hurt. So, yeah, I don't think you can really knock him for that. The thing that always stood out to me with him, aside from his inconsistency, which I found maddening, but was how many pitches he threw, um, and he threw at kind of like an above-average level. You know, he had a really good fastball. He had a great cutter. He had a really nice changeup at times, a curveball that I thought was a really good pitch. I mean, he had kind of kind of everything. Yeah, he was a kitchen sink guy for sure. I mean, he threw he threw everything, and he, when he was at his best, that's why he was so good because he would throw everything, and he would throw it whenever he wanted. And counts didn't really matter to when he was at his best. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, he's still kicking around right now. He's still he only thirty five years old. He made uh, twelve starts for the Blue Jays last year. I think he signed with somebody for spring training. I don't remember. Yeah, you know, in 2018 with the D-backs, he had a 2.01 ERA. Oh yeah, oh uh, trust me, I I know my Clay <laughs> Buckles. He wasn't as he wasn't quite as good as the numbers uh, said. I watched a bunch of those starts though. I mean, it was that's Clay Buckles. Like it's yeah. just as soon as you count him out, he comes back and he's just out of his mind. Um, let's see, he's oh no, he's still a free agent. I could have sworn I saw that he signed to the. Yeah, and it's worth mentioning, too, that these are both guys that the Red Sox drafted high in John Lester and Clay Buckholtz. Um, and I think Pap, yeah, Pap wasn't as high. He was a fourth rounder. But, I mean, Lester Pap was, was a fourth rounder. Pap was a fourth. Lester was a second rounder, 16th overall in the second round, overall 57. Um, and then... But Buckholz was actually the highest draft pick out of those three guys. He was a 42nd overall um, first-round supplemental pick. Yeah. So, I mean, talent-wise, he was definitely kind of like a blue-chip guy. Oh, I mean, he was always like a – yeah, he was – like he he's not a guy that came out of nowhere. No. I'm trying to see who – um, who they got that pick for. The Buckholz pick? Yeah. Pedro. I don't think I ever knew that. I probably Interesting. Know, but I forgot about it. Yeah. So the, that, that the came from answer. the Mets? Um, yeah, that's where Pedro went after. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, did, that's not how the picks work, though. Back then, right? I don't think so. I think you just got, you just got like a supplemental round pick. You didn't. It yeah, didn't come like, out of the Mets' cachet. Red Sox had so many of those picks that year. Compensation yeah. picks. Changing the structure of the game has really hurt the Red Sox in terms of like how those picks work. In terms of free agents leaving and stuff like that. That's why they did it. Yeah. Definitely feeling it. Alright, let's talk about another guy who we both had fourth here. Um, also a high pick by the Red Sox. He was drafted in 2006 with the second uh, second rounder, he was 71st overall. That's Justin Masterson, who we both had fourth. Now, Masterson was a huge dude, and he was also one of the top prospects for the Red Sox, one of these guys that kind of had a lot of helium when he was coming up. Six foot six, 250, sinker baller guy, generated a ton of ground balls. I mean, throughout his time in the minor leagues and in the major leagues, he was always above a 50% ground ball rate guy. Came up with the Sox in 2008, um, had pitched 88 uh, innings that year, kind of a mix of relief and um, starting, had a 3.16 ERA, 
Um, and then the next year in 2009, he pitched about half the year with the Red Sox before he was traded to the Indians. And that's kind of where his career really started to take off was with the Indians. Yeah, Masterson always frustrated me, even with the Indians. He had a couple of good seasons in that, but it just always felt like he should have been more. Um, he just couldn't throw strikes when he needed to. But, yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. I sort of feel like maybe he should have been a reliever. I think, But, I mean, I think the Indians got some good years out of him, but I think just for him, in terms of being like, dominant instead of just being kind of a back-end solid starter for a few years. I think he could have been a pretty good reliever. Yeah, he came around at kind of a weird time. You know, he, he came around as, I think baseball was starting to get away from ground ballers like him. You know, the transition of guys starting to throw more high fastballs and, and getting away from the sinker kind of started as he started getting really good because he had his best season in 2011, his second best season in 2013, and then pretty soon after that, 2014, 2015, I mean, he was hammered right out of the game. Did he get hurt? I think he did get hurt. Yeah, I think injuries kind of played a role in that. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, like I was saying before, like the top three is just such a is just clearly, to me, not in the class of the other guys. Yeah, his velo fell off a complete cliff after 2013. He went from averaging nearly 92 on his fastball to 88, uh, high 88, so basically uh, 89, and then the following year, 80, 87.4. So something was going on. I don't remember what happened. He definitely got hurt. But it was interesting that he ended up coming back to the Red Sox in 2015. I completely forgot that that happened. I did too. 2015 is another one of those years that I kind of blocked out of my memory. Yeah, that was the last place here, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. He threw an immaculate inning against the Red Sox too. I definitely don't remember that. No, I don't remember that either. 20 on opening day. Hmm. Oh, no, it wasn't on opening day. It was on June 2nd. Oh, man, you know, we moved on to Lester a little too quick. I mean, uh, to Masterson a little too quick. Before we we stopped talking about Buckholz, we never talked about the fact that Buckholz threw a no-hitter in his second-ever start in the big leagues. We'll never forget that night. That was crazy. That was, yeah, that was one of, um, when was that? That was 2007, right? 2007. I remember I was driving in my car listening to the game when it was happening, and I literally pulled my car over to the side of the road to listen to like the last three or four outs of the game. It was wild. That was like when I first started like drinking and partying in high school. And I <laughs> very much remember that night. That was a very fun night. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, Man, you know what's crazy? So I've been doing some research on Jason Veritek um, because I have got an article coming out on Jason Veritek on uh, Tuesday. And um, almost all of Jason Veritek's no-hitters with guys have come with guys that he didn't really have that much familiarity with. You know, like he caught Buckholz's no-hitter 
in his second start ever with them. And then Nomo's no-hitter that he caught with him um, was his first start with Jason Veritek. Obviously, he'd caught him in spring training, but, like, you know, that's still really impressive to me. For sure. I think it's impressive for the pitchers, too, obviously, but, yeah. All right, so for our fifth, um, I believe this is where we started to break off a little bit. Yep, this is where things get weird for us. So my fifth selection was Brandon Workman, and your fifth selection was Daniel Bard. I'm going to let you go first. So why would you have Bard 5 here? Yeah, so I was kind of just thinking about peak at this point. Um, I mean, I was telling you before we record, like this next tier of like four pitchers, I think are all pretty close. But Bard, like, peak Daniel Bard was something special. Um, And it doesn't, like, I've looked back at his numbers many times, and they don't, the numbers don't look as good as I remember him being. Like, there was just something about the way he pitched that was absolutely unfair. Like, his ERAs don't really do it justice, I don't think. But I mean, that guy was, he was, him and Papelbon in the back of that bullpen was something special. And he was much better than any of the other people I'll name the rest of this list at their best. Not even close. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Um, the year that obviously stands out is that 2010 year when it felt like they were throwing him all the time in all high games. leverage situations. Yeah. He was, yeah, it was just, it was as probably... Him and Andrew Miller, those are probably the two most fun I've ever had watching relievers, just in terms of pure domination. Yeah, yeah, he was great, um, I have to say. And I think that in 2011, I might have even thought he was a little bit better, even though he had a worse ERA um, than he was in, in 2010, just because he seemed like he had a little bit more control that year in terms of being able to put the ball where he wanted to. I mean, those those two years taken together Three are years. really darn good. The 2009, too. Yeah. When he first yeah. came up. He, that was, I mean, he was, that was when he was striking out. He struck out more batters than ever that year. Um, I, yeah, he just got destroyed by going to the rotation, obviously, and I think there was probably more to it than that. Um, no, he got destroyed also, by Bobby V's presence. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it helped his confidence. I think it was a lot going on with that. He's trying to make a comeback right now. Yeah. And he's not so, that old. I mean, what? He's 34. 34, yeah. I mean, it, it all fell off a cliff very quickly. He was coaching last year. Interesting. Where? I believe he was with the Diamondbacks. He was I remember a, uh, him being taller than he was. He's. It says he was 6'4". For some reason, I thought he was like 6'6 when he was pitching with the Red Sox. 6'4 is huge. I mean, it's big, but, like, for a pitcher, you know, it's... It's pretty big. <laughs> I thought he was more of a giant. I feel like you're underrating how tall 6'4 is. Well, it's kind of funny because almost all of the guys on this <laughs> this list that the Red Sox uh, had success with, aside from Buckholtz, were, like, pretty big dudes. A lot of them, anyway, that we're going to talk about. I guess Lester's taller than I thought he was. How big is Lester? He's also 6'4". Yeah, I knew That's he was a horse. Right, those lists are all... Like, list measurements are... <laughs> Everybody knows that. Well, my guy that I picked was Brandon Workman. Um, 6'5". Huge, huge dude. Um, one of the most intimidating presences on the Red Sox, in my opinion. Um, for me, I think why Workman is the clear 
choice for me after those guys is because, um, you know, the obviously Papelbon is the best reliever here because he was an absolutely dominant closer, and the other three had really good years as starting pitchers. But this is sort of the best short-lived career as a reliever, and it's still going right now, and it's still getting better. Um, if we look at his his numbers with the Red Sox when he's really focused on being a reliever, meaning years that he didn't make any starts. Because he made a ton of starts. He made 15 of them in 2014 before he really transitioned to being a full-time reliever. Um, and we know he was a great reliever in the postseason. Uh, in 2013, he actually pitched 8.2 innings with a zero ERA in the postseason. But since then, since then, he's um, he's been dominant. I mean, he had a 3.18 ERA in 2017, 3.27 in 2018 and then last year he was bananas with a 1.88 in 16 saves um when he came over and, and locked in as the closer he was dominant absolutely dominant in every sense of the word that you can you know say and he stopped the walking guys as well at the same rate that he was he didn't give up any home runs last year he had 10 wins as out of relief which is kind of crazy too um i just think that workman has that kind of it factor for um, relievers where he he knows how to bear down and he throws some pretty good pitches. And I don't know. I just really enjoy watching Workman pitch right now. I think he's kind of dialed in and figured out what works for him. Yeah, I don't really disagree. I just don't really buy it either. I've never really bought it. And at this point, it's probably a me problem. But I still just, I don't know. Like, last year, was, I was blown away by the curveball, fastball thing. I've written about it a hundred times. I think it's my favorite thing about any player on the Red Sox, just the way those two pitches work off each other, and the fact that his fastball is one of the most effective in baseball last year, despite being, like, 92 miles an hour and not... I mean, it's not a straight straight arrow, but it doesn't have any sort of significant movement. Um, so the fact that he makes that work is, like, really impressive, but I just... I still don't buy it. I, I feel like he's more good than great. It's just the sense that I get. Like I said, I think it's more of a me problem than anything at this point. But just like last year, as good as he was, he just wasn't that good. <laughs> he wasn't nearly as good as the ERA. Like, I'm not going to say it was all luck, but at the same time, the guy walked six batters for nine innings, and he gave up one home run yeah. at a time when everybody was hitting home runs on every other swing. I mean, that's just... You need luck for that to happen. He just wasn't as good as the numbers say he was last year. Well, I think there's there's a couple things, right? So I, I agree with you that um, from a K to walk percentage, he definitely was not K to walk rate. He definitely was not. I mean, in the first half, he had a 1.96 K, K to walk rate, which is not what you want. Second half, it was 2.88, which is definitely better. Um, but the thing that kind of stands out to me is like, it didn't seem like anybody really hit him hard because all year 107 batting average against in the first half, 144 in the second half, kind of, he's difficult to square up for a lot of guys in, in high leverage situations. He really bore down. Yeah. I just, I don't know how much that carries over going forward. I guess that kind of clouds my judgment. I shouldn't probably, it's hard for me to think about the current guys in terms of only the past just because that's just not how I think about them normally, which isn't how this exercise is supposed to work, but I'm only human. So I think of workmen. Let me let me ask you if if I give you these numbers together, from twenty seventeen to twenty nineteen, he's seventeen and three, hundred and fifty two innings pitched, 
2.59 ERA. Yeah, but I mean, it's a reliever. I don't really care that much about ERA without the rest of the context. And I look at a guy who's had home run issues his entire career and then last year just didn't. And you throw in the walk issues. I don't know. Like I, like I said, I think the next four guys, including Danny Barr, that I'm going to talk about, they're all pretty much the same to me. So I don't really want to like act like I'm offended by Workman being in the spot. I'm <laughs> certainly not. It's just not where I'd have him. Yeah, and, and, and the reason why I have him is because I just tend to value guys who can close games a little bit higher than guys who either don't close games or can't close games or for whatever reason aren't trusted in that role. Um, so, yeah. All right, let's go down to number six. We both had the exact same guy for number six. We both settled on Junichi Tazawa. Um, talk to me about Taz. Why is Taz a good fit for the sixth spot here? Um, well, Tazawa is maybe the most underappreciated player since I started covering the Red Sox. Tazawa was so good for like three-ish years. Um, He was about as good as it got in terms of controlling the strike zone. And I just absolutely love watching a pitcher control the strike zone like him. Um, And that means striking guys out and uh, and not issuing walks. He got hit a little hard sometimes, which is why he was never like super elite. But man, he just never put anybody on for free, and it was he. And I also just like personally, he was one of the big reasons why people started paying attention to me because I wouldn't shut up about Junichi Tsawa. So just <laughs> on a personal level, I've always appreciated him. Um, but I mean, like I said, I just if I did this list again, I might even have a buff Bart. Like he was, he was so good. Well, I love this combo of pitches, too. He was uh, similar to Jonathan Papelbon with what he threw. He threw a fastball, a splitter. Uh, he threw a curveball. Jonathan Papelbon had a slider instead. But, I mean, he, he threw three really quality pitches in pretty much any count and was able to command all of them. That time that you were talking about from 2012 to 2014 for him, he went 175 innings pitched, uh, walked less than two guys per nine, struck out more than nine per nine, um, struck out more than a batter per nine, I should say, in 2.62 ERA. And that's not even including the fact that during the postseason, um, in that 2013 run, he had a 1.23 ERA over that span too and basically didn't walk anybody. He walked even fewer than he did during the regular season. So the dude was electric when it counted too. Yeah, he was always kind of overshadowed by Koji, which, I mean, to be fair, obviously, <laughs> Koji was amazing and then like earlier he was overshadowed by andrew miller too it always felt like there was somebody else in front of him that kind of took that shine away yeah but he was he was always like right there as that really underrated and just really steady number two yeah i agree um i love taz the only guy who um was kind of similar in the role that we couldn't talk about because it was he wasn't really developed with the Red Sox, who I liked more than Taz in that role was Okajima. Okajima. I just I loved Okajima. He is one of my all-time favorite players, um, and I think for a lot of the a lot of the reasons like why you talked about why you like Taz is why I liked Okajima. I just thought he was so clutch. For the so other long. thing about um, Tazawa, have you ever had a high chew candy? Japanese candy. 
I don't know, maybe. Very good. Um, very good Japanese, like, chewy candy. They I have a Vietnamese uh, coffee shop right next to me that sells them. But, nice. So Tozawa brought them to the Red Sox clubhouse when he was, like, playing with the Red Sox, and everybody loved them. <laughs> and so when team when players started going to new teams, they would start bringing them, and they suddenly became like quietly the most popular food, one of the most popular food in major huh. clubhouses. And uh, yeah, so he bought he owns a uh, high chew factory in America now. Holy <laughs> crap! Another yeah, to love these things have a real cult following. I'm looking at there. You can buy they're a high so chew good. hoodie sweatshirt. <laughs> they're so good. I get them anytime I go to get a coffee because they, oh. they have them like right next to the cash register at this coffee shop. I always grab a pack. Okay, I'm definitely gonna have there to check go. out these high chews. Yeah, go to like they have them at like Asian grocery stores too. I'm sure you can find them there. Word. All right, moving on to the next guy. Um, for us, for our number seven, we both had the same guy as well. That's Matt Barnes. Um. Matt, I had a little bit of trouble ranking Matt Barnes because I feel like Matt Barnes is better than his numbers. He's kind of the opposite of Workman for me. Um, and I get really frustrated with Matt Barnes because he, he also, like Workman, walks too many guys. He gives up way too many home runs. But the stuff is filthy. I, on, in terms of pure talent, um, Barnes is right behind Bard on this list for me it's not particularly close um in moving forward i think like i was saying i can't really think of the current players without kind of projecting them forward a little bit i don't think there's any question that barnes is the best reliever on the red Sox right now um it just kind of all depends on what you look at and i mean if you look at dra which i still think is the best pitching metric out there barnes is legitimately one of the top like 10 to 15 relievers of baseball i don't know that i would go that far but i think that just speaks to how frustrating he is for sure but how talented he is and how i still think he can be a developmental success story because i still think he can be one of the best relievers of baseball for a stretch and he hasn't he's been durable um he's done it in the postseason I think he's. I think his contributions in 2018 in that postseason run have been thoroughly underrated. Um, looking back, he was an absolute monster. He was one of two relievers, like two or three real relievers that were trusted in that run, and he did mm-hmm. extremely well when they needed him to. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I love Matt Barnes. I think the stuff is there. It's just a matter of getting it consistent. Which whether or not you can do it is obviously still a question, but. As a former top prospect, I think he's done fairly well. Yeah, he's definitely a, a good development success story. I mean, when Matt Barnes was coming up, he was thought to be a starter. Um, he was and, one of the killer bees. Yeah, um, exactly. And, you know, when he came up, it, it was clear that he probably didn't have what it took to be a starter. It was, it was clear before he came up that he was not a starter. But, I mean, he's got some really good offerings. I, I love his curveball. I mean, I think he's got an underrated fastball. I think he falls in love with it a little bit at times, and I think that contributes to some of these home run numbers. But, by and large, he's given the Red Sox since 2016 four seasons in a row with 60-plus, you know, averaging like 65-plus innings pitched um, over that time span, striking out a ton of guys. But the the thing that just continues to frustrate me is – the uh, men on base with him it's it 
comes back to kill him because it's always coupled with the home run problems. Yeah, well, it's the thing with Barnes is like it's always not to excuse it because this is you can't just like do. It doesn't matter if they're spaced out or not, but Barnes' struggles always come within the same period of time. It's not like he'll have like a couple bad outings a month. It's like he'll have like four really good months, and then he'll have six weeks where he's just unusable. And it's so th- I think that's kind of why I get the sense that his the perception of his talent among fans isn't quite where it should be because we see him. It's not just once in a while. It's when he's bad, he's bad, and when he's good, he's good. Yeah, last year, uh, June nine point six nine ERA they killed him early last year. They absolutely <laughs> yeah. destroyed Matt Barnes last year. I do not hold anything against him last year. He pitched like every single day for the first six weeks of the season. Oh, he was completely misused. Uh, it was in, not a, in, the, in the whole June. bullpen was, but yeah, it was. They had no, they had no idea what they were doing with the bullpen. Yeah, through June first, uh, the team had played fifty eight games, and he had pitched in twenty three of them. I mean, it was just. It was totally unsustainable, and it was very clear that it I mean, was going to go downhill very quickly. I remember we were podcasting every day with each other yeah. during that time period, and we were getting super frustrated because they used him in every single high leverage situation. So it wasn't just like some of those twenty three appearances. Oh yeah, they were, were all stress. Yeah, exactly. Was the best hitters on whoever, whatever team they were playing. Yeah, he. he you know, he's well the one. For the beginning of that season, he was doing very well in those in a very difficult role, and then it just the stress and the injuries just caught up with him. For sure, yeah, I think uh, he definitely did really well for that beginning part. I think uh, it would catch up to anybody. I don't. I I think there was a stat actually last year, and I'm blanking on it, but I'm going to kind of reference what I thought it was. I'm pretty sure that he was second only to Josh Hader in terms of amount that he was used in those high leverage fireman type roles uh probably something with win probability added or something like that I was something like that yeah measuring it. i don't remember anything specific but um yeah i mean everybody knows i love matt barnes just one last matt barnes step um, by going back to dra um adjusted for park values matt barnes's dra minuses have been 70 49 and 56 in the last three years which is just out of this world, especially those last two. I mean, those last two, if you use DRA as gospel, which I don't think anybody does, and I certainly don't, but, I mean, that would make him a top three reliever in baseball. He's definitely one of those guys that I think everybody is paying attention to, even in fantasy circles, because you roster him because he's going to strike out 100 guys a year. See, I don't think that's... I mean, fantasy, I'm sure it is. I'm not really in tune with fantasy, but baseball writers at large, nationally... Uh, Matt Barnes, nobody pays attention to Matt Barnes. That I don't know the sounds I've gotten by non-fantasy writers. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree with that. I think I think that's fair. All right, um, number eight on this list. I had Manny Del Carmen. You had Brandon Workman. Um, I guess I will start because we've talked about yeah, Del- talk uh, about Workman a little bit. Um, with Manny Del Carmen, I guess the thing about him was that I didn't realize how many really solid years Del Carmen had with the Sox. I mean, he had a bunch of years where he was one of the most important relievers on the team. Yeah, I don't remember Manny Del Carmen's career is something that I've learned in the last couple of hours. Um, He was much better than I remembered him being. And 
I guess I didn't watch baseball in the same way at this point in my life, so it was sort of more on the periphery. And I guess I just don't. I probably don't have the um, respect for Manny Del Carmen that I should. Man, he had a five oh six ERA in two thousand six, and that was a ninety four ERA plus. That is wild. Hmm. Five oh six ERA was almost league average. That's wild. I'm just, I'm just getting distracted now. But yeah. yeah, no, that's that's crazy. Um, I think the the two years that really kind of made me put him on the list, and I do remember him from these situations because I'm a little bit older than you, so these were kind of more of my formative. Oh, years. I certainly wasn't. I was 16 in 2007. It was it wasn't a matter of being young. It was uh, what I was talking about earlier about starting to party. Okay. Fucked my memory. A bit those years, but. Yeah, but like 0607, um, those two years combined, he threw 118 innings with a 2.81 ERA. 0708, yeah, 0708. Um, and I mean, he even had some saves there. He had a lot of high leverage innings that he pitched during those times. So Manny Del Carmen was just one of those guys that I trusted. He was sort of that Junichi Tazawa, Hideki Okajima, not quite as good as those guys, but that same type of um, guy who they would go to not to close out games, but, you know, to be that seventh, eighth inning, sometimes sixth if they got in trouble. Um, he was kind of used in all those situations. And, you know, the thing, the thing that was cool about Manny was he was pretty steady. He didn't really walk that many guys when he was good. I mean, for a three-year stretch, his, his walks per nine were right around three, taking over three years, so... Um, a little bit higher than that, but he didn't walk anybody. He had a good fastball. I, I liked Tal Carmen. He was a good guy. And he's kind of, he's actually not bad on the radio or on the uh, TV. On TV. I, I don't know. He's only, he only does pregame stuff, right? Has he ever been in the booth? I don't think he's been in the booth. I think he's I only watch, pregame. Uh, yeah, I don't watch those shows. But um, he's from Boston, right? Yeah, he's from Boston. Is he? Um, yeah. That's <laughs> the biggest thing I remember from, about Manny Del Carmen. Because I used to listen, that was I used I listened to a ton of talk radio at that time. They always talked about how he's from Boston, but um, he kind of embodied that 2017 because nobody appreciates how good that team was either. And he was just kind of like he was awesome, and he was just kind of a dude. That team was so loaded. I think he kind of just got lost. In it. Yeah, that team was filthy loaded. I I don't know why that team doesn't get as much love because I don't know if you think story around it. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's it. I but mean, like 2004, obviously to, you know why 2013 had the marathon 2018 yeah. even had, I mean, they were, they were a wagon. They were, to, they, I, I mean, depending on how you feel about the science ceiling stuff, I think there's an argument for 2007 being above them, but they didn't win as many games. So yeah. 2008 was just, I mean, 108 wins or whatever it was. It's hard to beat that. So I mean, 2007 just gets lost in the shuffle. But that was that was my favorite World Series team. I think we talked about this before. That was a very that was a time in my personal life. That month of October was a very strange time for me in my life, and that Red Sox team was very important to me. Yeah, I don't. I think for forever for me, 04 is going to be my favorite. Yeah, but I totally get that. You know, there are different things that attract people to it. I think the run I paid the most attention to outside of 04 was I mean I pay attention to all of them but I think covering the team to the degree that I was in 2018 made that special you know um, but yeah I, I, I get it um, Del Carmen though 
you were talking about him being local. 2000 draft, first draftee from a Boston public high school in 34 years. Pretty cool. Yeah, good, good outcome for a cold weather guy from Hyde it's Park. No, uh, it's not Carlos Pena. But... Yeah, Placata, right? That's his thing. Oh, yeah, let me know. He went to my high school. Oh, not Haverhill. Time, obviously, but yeah, he's uh, Haverhill. He's a hilly. Um, does it bother you when people call it Haverhill? Uh, no. I, it's a stupid. It's a, it's a stupid city name, so I get it. I'm not from like. I mean, it's not Worcester or Peabody or anything, so I can't really complain. Yeah, Worcester is constantly butchered. Um. All right. Um, so number nine, uh, I had Bard. You had Manny Del Carmen. Um, we've talked about both of those guys. Any any closing thoughts on either of those two? Nope. Okay. Moving on to number ten, we both had Felix Dubron. What do you remember about Felix Dubron? Uh, <laughs> I am going to be the only person who ever says this. For whatever reason, the thing I remember about Felix Dubron is that they got I'm double checking this to make sure that I got the yeah. they got Marco Hernandez for him as a player to be needed later why yep. that's the thing that I remember I don't know but that is what I remember the most about Felix Dubron that is also completely the thing that I remember about it him it makes no well. sense it's not like yep. Marco Hernandez is that good but I mean Felix Dubron was solid he was okay do you remember that in 2013 he pitched 7 innings in the postseason with a 1-2-9 ERA I remember him being a big part of that roster for sure I came yeah. down to uh, him and Brian Johnson, and they're very similar to me. I am glad they went with Dubron. I mean, he obviously has better stuff. Dubron? Yeah. Yeah, Johnson is... I've always admired Johnson's ability to go back and forth. I think it's a very underrated quality for a pitcher that doesn't get discussed enough, and I think that him and Hector Velasquez doing that in 2018 was... A very big part of that run. But yeah, I mean, at this point, you're talking about quality pitchers, basically. Yeah, I mean, Dubront is, um, he's kind of an interesting guy because he's a guy that I don't know, I don't know how many teams, if we did this for like all the teams in the league over this stretch, I'm not sure how many teams Dubront would actually make because... My guess would be 10. Yeah, it would be low, right? I mean, he's a guy who has... 3.8 3.8 war for his career. Really didn't have too much. Too, he had some pretty bad years. I mean, his last two years, 2014, 2015, were really bad. Um, and when he was starting for the Red Sox in 2012, 2013, uh, he was kind of middle of the pack. He was, baseball reference war, he was below placement level until 2012. Oh, interesting. Point, point one. And then he was a little bit above in 2013. 0.7 in 2013. Positive 0.7. Hmm. And then minus, whoa, minus uh, 1.2 wins above replacement in 59 and a third innings in 2014 with the Red Sox. That's almost impressively bad. Wow. Fangraphs doesn't penalize them quite that bad because they're FIP-based. They have a minus 0.02. I never look at pitcher wars. Some of this is kind of blowing my mind. Yeah, I don't know how much I I I have like 
I have some serious problems with pitcher war versus hitter war. It makes less sense to me. I don't like any of them. But, um, I look at it as like a start, and then I just never look at it again. But overall, I mean, what this tells us about the Red Sox is that they haven't been despicable at developing pitching. They've been pretty bad at developing starters, especially because when we look at this list, I mean... Masterson didn't even really start long for the Red Sox before he was traded, and he wasn't traded for much. I can't remember what they gave up for Victor Martinez, right? That was the Victor Martinez trade. That was a pretty dang good trade. Yeah, I guess it is. We ended up with Victor Martinez for like one season, though, right? Victor Martinez, I think it was a season and a half. They got him for like the second half of that season, and he was there the following year as well. Okay. Yeah, so I guess if you're talking about two years of Victor Martinez. It's a year. Or a year and a half. Yeah. They gave up. Well, Nick Hagedum was a guy at that point, too. He never turned into anything. But he was a fairly well-regarded prospect in the system. Mm, Yeah. No, I'm looking at this. V-Mart, when he came over in 09, he batted 336, 405, 507 for that team down the stretch in 09. And then he had a really good year, 122 WRC plus in 2010. So He was awesome. <laughs> I actually like that trade for both teams. Uh, yeah, I'll take Victor Martinez in that trade every single time. <laughs> yeah, but like if you're looking at it just from a value standpoint, like they've got two really solid years out of... Out of him, too. Cost controlled. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were at different points. And the Red Sox, I mean, the Red Sox were super going for it at this point. That's a good trade for the Sox. Yeah, Victor Martinez was awesome. I loved Victor Martinez. Victor Martinez is now, uh, he was supposed to have a horse in the Kentucky Derby. Really? Yes. Ken Rosenthal, I believe so. Ken Rosenthal wrote a story about him. I think that's what it's I did not know he was horse in the Kentucky Derby, Rich. Um, I don't think it's like only his horse. Okay, but, but he's, he's got a stake. Yeah. Owned by... Yeah. It says he's the owner. Huh. Every time I think of horses in the Derby now, I'm thinking of season three of Ozark. So I don't know if you've seen that yet, but... I couldn't get into Ozark. It's not that good. It's a show watched, that's highly overrated. Yeah, it's kind of. I watched the first like four or five episodes when it first came out, when the first season came out, and nobody was ever talking about it. Then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, in the last like two months, I guess it's just the quarantine. People are looking for something to watch. <laughs> Everybody's like getting super into it, which is cool. I mean, I'm not one to like. I understand people like different things. It's just I'm very surprised that it came out. Sort of came out of nowhere. Yeah, I think people really want it to be better than it is. And I also think it's got a little bit of that streaming vibe. You know, when you watch something streaming, it seems better and it seems to make a little bit more sense than something that you're watching, like, episodically. Um, I think it's harder for a show to cover up flaws when you're watching it and thinking about it for a week in between episodes than when you're just, like, pounding it. Yeah, I don't even remember why I didn't get into it. I keep saying I'm going to try it again and then I'm like, I'm definitely uh, you know what I actually have been liking a little bit more than that? I just started it, but at least it's really weird, and I, I'm enjoying it, is Altered Carbon. Have you seen that? 
That's on Netflix. Netflix too, right? No, yeah. I've been trying to. I haven't. We're going a huge tangent. <laughs> I haven't. <laughs> I haven't watched anything like new drama series. Um, I'm just not. I don't really feel like watching. I don't feel like devoting myself to something. I'm just not in the mood. Yeah, here, yeah. I I got a lot of downtime right now. So I, well, I'm watching. I'm rewatching shows. I'm rewatching The Americans right now. Mm, and I'm watching a lot of uh, competition reality shows. I've been super into The Amazing Race for like three and a half weeks now. Interesting. It's not slowing down anytime soon. <laughs> well, good for you. I've been watching Ken Burns baseball. I'm, I saw you talking about that. I watched that way back in the day. Yeah, I'm about eight hours in right now. I put it I on ten more hours. Sleep. Oh, it's like immediate sleep if you put that on. I, I have to watched, really uh, fight. Did you watch Stay Community? Away. I watched some of it when it was on. I haven't watched it like they had a Ken since Burns it's been. Episode. Community that was very good. Oh, Ken Burns interesting documentary. I know that it was part of. Um, they had an episode about how one of the main characters on the Mindy Project really liked Ken Burns too. So it's, it's a running, uh, running joke. Ken Burns documentaries. Yeah, well, I mean, he's probably the most famous. Oh, well, maybe not the most famous, but he's up there. Yeah, it's like him and the guy uh, David Attenborough, David who does Attenborough. all the nature shows. He doesn't make those, though, does he? I think he's involved. Oh, is pretty he? sure. I always he's, thought he I, just had a good voice. He's he's got he's got some serious pipes. Oh, I mean, I'm <laughs> taking that away from him. I just didn't know he was creatively involved. I, he I think he is. I'm don't don't quote me on that. Yeah. All right, let's move on here before uh, we we go really really off a cliff on tangents. So I wanted to give kind of a shout out to to some of the Red Sox successes in the minor leagues too, um, because when you think about the system as a whole, they've had more successes than have actually made it to the field. Like we focused on guys that made it to the field, at least in some degree, but they've also had a bunch of guys that they developed who were highly thought of that they traded to other teams for key pieces. So I wanted to mention Michael Kopech. I have a take on this than you. Oh, okay. Um, I will give it and then you can, uh, you can, you can give me your take. Um, Michael Kopech uh, traded obviously as a big piece of the Chris Sale deal. Logan Allen, who was a big piece of the uh, Craig Kimbrell deal. Anderson Espinosa straight up for Pomerantz, which I hated at the time, but ended up being a pretty decent deal. And then Jalen Beeks for Nathan Eovaldi. Um, all those, in my eyes, are good outcomes. Oh, what I think, think they're good outcomes. My take is that they were traded partially because they're so bad at developing pitchers, and everybody except for Beeks was fairly early in their development, so the Red Sox traded them before their development system could ruin them. that's not a joke that's dead ass i think that's the best use or has been the best use that they can use of talented pitchers well that is that is a fair assumption based on the fact that none of those guys i believe were actually signed or drafted by dombrowski correct uh no right so dombrowski is the one who traded all of them well was logan allen no, I don't, I don't think, think so. so. I think he was a Charrington guy. He got, oh man, did he? He got traded right after he was drafted. But I think that was the draft. Yeah, Trumperowski came on like two months after that draft because Logan yeah. Allen was one of the first players I think traded. Like, and Logan right Allen was also the fourth piece in the deal. He was like the last piece that completed the Kimbrel deal. Yeah, I've never really liked the narrative. 
people meaning have always that, made meaning that Meaning that up. they didn't have to include them? Yeah, I've never agreed with that. I don't know. I think that there's some merit to the fact that, like, if he was, if he held firm and he was like, hell no, you can't have Allen, but you can have one of these, like, 15 guys, I think they probably still get it done, but I think that there's not a lot that... Well, the issue that people raised at the time was that they just didn't need to throw in another prospect at all. Yeah. I, I think maybe maybe they did, but not him. I think, yeah, well, I mean, I think Logan Allen has turned into more than he was supposed to be, but I guess my thing with that was always I don't mind, because Logan Allen at that time was not that highly regarded as a prospect. He was, like, solid, but he wasn't, like, a top prospect or anything. People no, he's a stuff guy. About another name being added in, and I was fine with throwing in another prospect to just get it done. I think people underrate, in my opinion, underrate the value of getting it done rather than sitting and waiting and holding. Oh, it. I agree. And I think that's Dombrowski was kind of all about that, and it was a very, very clear personality trait of Dombrowski was we're going to get this done today. Well, I was maddeningly frustrated with Charrington during his time here and his it, inability yeah, to do that. It was like the polar opposites. Yeah. there's th- That's why we say like Theo is kind of the perfect mix because Theo yeah. was sort of dead center in terms of that. And I hope that we'll see that with Bloom too. I kind of I get more of a Theo vibe from Bloom than I do being like the other two. So hopefully. I, think, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you can compare anybody to Theo just because Red Sox, Theo at least. Because it's such baseball, is so different now. The way transactions work. Yeah, that's true. Very different landscape. Uh, was there anybody that I missed out on? Big name pitchers who were traded for big pieces. I couldn't think of any off the top of my brain other than those four. I'm sure there's somebody else. <laughs> I can't think of. Yeah, one. I'm sure there was. Uh, Casey Kelly. Casey Kelly. Casey Kelly. Yep. He was, was part a, of the Aegon. Deal, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. Yep. We traded him at the right time. And who was that uh, reliever who I'm thinking of for the um, St. John's? He was. He Craig went to St. John's. Hanson. Yeah, Craig Hanson. And they move him for someone too. Was he part? I think he was part of the Melanson deal. Mark Melanson. Maybe. Mark Melanson for Craig Hanson. No, well, wasn't it? Because uh, Hanson was a while ago. He went to Pittsburgh. Uh, was he part of the Arroyo deal? He was part of the Jason Bay trade. Oh. Okay. That makes sense. That was several years after Arroyo. Yeah, that was 2008. That was when they traded Manny. Right. And Arroyo actually came to us from the Reds. He was developed by Pittsburgh. I always forget that. Arroyo? Yeah. Arroyo was a Pittsburgh draft pick. I knew that. I don't think he came from the Reds, though. Pretty sure he did. He went Didn't to the Reds he? after. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of. I saw um, myself and Mark Normandon saw Bronson Arroyo play Wonderwall at the halftime of a Red Claws game one time. <laughs> nice. We had no idea that he was going to be there. That's kind of cool. It was so weird. We were standing <laughs> in line for beer, and all of a sudden it's like, is that Bronson Arroyo? Did you could you recognize him by his voice or were they just announcing that it was Bronson? Oh, he just looked over and saw him at the middle of the court. The Red Claws <laughs> okay. basically played a high school gym. Yeah, so it's like yeah. He, it was just he was basically right next to me. I've walked past it on the way to Hadlock, but I've never been inside. It's it's nothing special. 
All right, let's get to our listener questions here. We have um, our first one from Mark, uh, whose Twitter handle is at MystifiedBeef19. He says, who's the number one pitcher if we even have a season? What? Eduardo Rodriguez. Yeah, no doubt. This is, uh, yeah, definitely Erod. Because no sale. Brothers Judd has the second question. He says, assume a season of some kind. I don't. Um, why don't the Sox sign Puig cheap, both to entertain us down in, in a down season and because you may be able to trade him? Uh, so in like January, I suggested this in the event that the Red Sox traded bets and didn't get an outfielder back. Um, but obviously that didn't happen. They kind of have a full outfielder already. Plus Kevin Pillar is already on the bench. So yeah. I love Puig. I would love to have the Red Sox sign him. But I, it just doesn't fit. I also don't know if there are going to be trades this year. This has been something I've been thinking about. If they do that, which I don't think it's going to happen. But if they ever did that Arizona-Florida split thing, um, they wouldn't be allowed to trade. Or at least wouldn't be allowed to trade like cross leagues. So, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen with that. The transaction freeze is obviously on now. I've been against Puig the whole time. I don't like Puig. And I think the Red Sox have... Four outfielders I'd rather watch than Puig. Yeah, I, when I yeah when I suggested him, it was in the event they didn't get like a Verdugo type back for bets and they needed yeah. an outfielder. All right, so last question comes from Kevin Bolton. He says, "Did you guys rewatch the 2004 ALCS Game Four on FS1 last night? And if so, what kind of nostalgia did it bring you? Did you watch it? I don't rewatch old games. Yeah, I didn't watch it either." Um, I typically don't rewatch old games. I will from time to time, but no, I didn't watch it. Um, I think more than 2004 um, ALCS Game 4, I typically, my biggest ALCS moment is uh, uh, 04 Game 5. The Ortiz single off Esteban Luiza. Um, and I think the 10th or 11th inning, I'm blanking right now, which inning it was, but that's the play that I typically think about when I think about the 04 ALCS. Oh, I, do, I definitely think of game forward for sure, but I don't, yeah, I don't really enjoy watching old games. Yeah, for me, it's just like, I couldn't believe Poppy did it twice. You no, know? I mean, obviously, for sure. It's... That whole thing was... Um, all right, so next question, he says, what was the uh, game, What was that the game beginning of the Legend of Big Poppy? If not, where do you think it started? No, do you think was, that's the start, or do you think 2003? It was some point in 2003. I can't pinpoint an exact moment off the top of my head. Yeah, I want to say that there I guess was... I it depends what you mean by the Legend of Big Poppy. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, right. I mean, that so put like, him on a different pedestal, but he was already like... Like, it wasn't, like, totally out of nowhere. It wasn't, like, Dan Johnson for the Rays in 2011. Like, it was... David Ortiz is a huge part of that team already. Yeah, I should have prepared for this question a little bit better, but I, I'm just using stri- strictly from memory. I believe that it was, like, June of 2003. He had a game-winning home run, and I think it was Angels Stadium. I they believe it was... They replayed one. I don't remember what it was, but they did replay a walk-off. Because they did, just had a David Ortiz week on Nesson. There was some David Ortiz walk-off from 2003, I don't remember. 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was in Angel Stadium. If I remember correctly, it was a West Coast road trip in Angel Stadium, and David Ortiz had a walk-off to win the game, and it pretty much like solidified that from that point forward, it was the David Ortiz show for the remainder of the year in the DH spot. Yeah, that sounds about right. I have my memory. That was a long time ago. I was like 12. So I have specific memories. But I, like I said, I, Ortiz was still was already Ortiz by that point, 2004. Yeah, totally. Um, definitely added to the legend, though. All right, final question from Kevin. He says, quarantine question. Which three bands slash artists do you want to see perform at Fenway? Give me an opener, second opener, and main headliner for for your bands. So first of all, let me just say, I've seen a few concerts at Fenway. I don't actually like it as a music venue at all because acoustically I think it's kind of crappy and I don't really like where the seats are. Um I'm never I'm never feeling like I'm looking at the stage. Maybe I always have crappy seats when I go. Um, but I don't know. What is what is your thought about Fenway as a concert venue? I've never been to a concert at Fenway. I don't really go to a ton of concerts overall. Um, if I'm seeing live music, I'd rather... I'm not really big on like, huge crowds. So mm-hmm. generally, generally, I go to like just a bar and somebody will have it. Like guitar or something there. It's generally yeah. mine, but I guess I would go. Man, I don't know. Uh, I'm assuming it can't be dead. So yeah, I went with live bands. Yeah, so I guess I would. I'll start with a band that I don't really even really listen to that much anymore. But I saw Taking Back Sunday like way back in the day when I was in high school, and that was a pretty good show. So just go back to my roots a little bit there, and then um, a couple of bands slash just acts. I don't know if they're really bands, but um, a band called First Aid Kit and a single singer-songwriter named Taylor Jansen. They are not... They would never perform at Fenway. They're like folk singers, but I would go see them wherever they were playing, I guess. Nice. I uh, also saw Taking Back Sunday in the day. They were very good. Where'd you see them? Um, I saw them in Boston, actually. I was seeing at the same concert. They uh, they played a free show in Boston when I was in college, and um, I don't remember what it was for, but it was pretty sweet. That I saw. Yeah. So you were you said you were in high school. Two thousand seven, two thousand eight, somewhere around that. Time. Yeah, no, that would have been. I think it was 07 when I saw him. So that bad. sounds right. For me, um, I would see. I would like it to be two bands I've seen and one that is on my list that I'm like kind of pissed I still haven't seen yet. Um, I would open with the Pixies because I think that they are really good live. I would go with Weezer second. Um, I've seen them among the most I've seen bands, and I tend to like listen re re-listen to Weezer more than almost any band. Um and then my headliner, who I regrettably have not seen yet, is Rancid, and I would love to see them. Uh I was going to see them last no, two years ago, um in Brockton, but then uh I had a wedding that I had to go to during that weekend, so I did not get to go see them. Bummer. Yeah. Oh well. You, uh, Someday maybe. You missed a question. Oh, what did I miss? 
It says, uh, start one, bench one, cut one. Ooh. Red Sox, okay. Patriots, Bruins. I hate this question. Hmm. All right, I'll give, my, I'll give you mine first. Start the Red Sox, bench the Patriots, cut the Bruins because Jeremy Jacobs is an asshole. And also because the Bruins for me have always been fourth in terms of teams that I have like a really strong allegiance to. I typically root for specific players in the NHL more than I root for teams. And I always have. Yeah, I'm just refusing to answer this question because the Celtics aren't. Yeah, I don't get why they weren't in this question. <laughs> I but because I I don't I watch football and hockey, but I don't care that much about it. I'm more of a baseball basketball guy, so um, a little upset not including the Celtics there. That was from Norman. Now I'm mad at him. <laughs> well, thank you for the question, Norman. But next time, please include the Celtics. All right, well, that does it for our show. We do hope you enjoyed it. We went kind of long today, but you know what? I feel like a lot of you guys have some downtime, so maybe that's okay. Um, We hope everybody's well, Um, and if you would like to, please subscribe to the show. We do appreciate that. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, ones that come to mind to me, iTunes, uh, Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify. We are on all of those things, so please subscribe. Uh, We also like reviews, so if you can give us a five-star review, we appreciate that. And you can follow us on Twitter. You can follow Matt at MattRYCollins. You can follow me at at DevJake. And lastly, you can follow the Over the Monster account at at Over the Monster. And thank you very much for being with us today, and we will be with you next time.